0: Well, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis 3, and if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back, and we would love to get a Bible into your hand, so you can just slip your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, just keep this. It's our gift to you uh, today. Trust that it will be a blessing to you and an encouragement to your soul and uh, even a source of great joy to you in this season. We are continuing to move forward as you saw with our Advent series and uh, we began the Advent series with hope. Uh, we looked last week at love and this week we're looking at joy. And we're going to look at it again through the lens of Genesis 3:15. We've been there the last few weeks and I know this is no surprise to you. But I think it's actually a really important place to turn to consider joy. We know the context of Genesis 3.15, the context in which this verse bursts forth from the pages of Scripture, and that is in one of the saddest moments in all the Bible and in all of human history. It's the moment where Adam and Eve have turned against God. They have not received Him with gratitude. They have not received Him as the source of all joy. Instead, they have turned away from God, believing that they can find joy apart from God, satisfaction for their soul apart from God. And what we find in this section of Scripture is that couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, the decision they make doesn't lead them down a path of joy, it leads them down a path of sorrow. And I I think it's really helpful to consider joy against the backdrop of sorrow because when we understand true sorrow, biblical sorrow, we can actually understand the greatness of joy and we hopefully can find our hearts rejoicing in the joy that's offered In the moment of greatest sadness and sorrow, God speaks to Adam and Eve. Really, He speaks to the serpent, but in effect, He tells Adam and Eve that He's giving them this promise. It's not always going to be sad. The the sad things of this world will one day come untrue, and let's just refresh our, our hearts and our minds in what God says to the serpent. He says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." And when you first look at this, it it doesn't appear like there's joy in this passage, and I'll, I'll grant to you that joy is not explicitly mentioned, and joy is not specifically highlighted, but if you understand that this promise gives hope to God's people in the midst of sorrow, if you understand that it's undergirded by the love of God, then the only natural response, if you truly understand this promise, is to find your heart rejoicing. That's what we see as we look at this. In the midst of ruin, there is a call to rejoice. And it would have been easy in this moment for Adam and for Eve to be crushed under the the weight and guilt of sin and shame. It would have been easy for them to live under the condemnation of God, to experience the, the kind of despair that many sadly feel in this life that makes life feel unlivable. To make you ask the question, what's the point of going on any longer? But the promise of hope birthed out of God's love is the promise that leads us from sorrow to joy. And we serve a God who takes our mourning and turns it into dancing. We serve a God who takes our sorrows and turns them into joy. And so I want to show you that um, four ways in this or from this passage. We're going to leap out of here and we're going to spend some time in the Psalms. We're going to look at a few psalms in each passage here, or each point, and I think that's fitting because the psalms are Israel's songbook, and if you read through the psalms, what you find is, yes, they're filled oftentimes with songs of deep sorrow, but they always lead to songs of great joy. And so I hope your heart will be even refreshed with that idea in mind. Let's look first at this, that the promise here in Genesis 3.15 leads us from the sorrow of sin to the joy of repentance, The sorrow of sin, as we've seen in this passage, enters the world through Adam and through Eve. And from now on, one of the most defining features of humanity will be sin. Yes, they're made in the image of God, but yes, all of humanity, in fact, all of creation, is going to feel the effects of sin. They're going to be radically altered by the enslaving power of sin. Sin will produce, as we've already seen, guilt and shame and condemnation. It will produce a great sorrow. And the shame of sin, as we've seen with Adam and Eve, it causes us to do a number of different things, destructive things. We can excuse our sin. We can blame others for our sin or blame our our context for our sin or our circumstances for our sin, or we can hide our sin. We can simply think that that it can remain hidden, that we'll never have to give an account for our sin. Those are destructive responses to sin, and that's what we've seen Adam and Eve do when confronted by God in their sin. But those aren't the only destructive responses that we could have towards sin. It is possible to live in utter hopelessness and despair because of our sin, to allow the sorrow of sin to, to eclipse all of our life, to steal any semblance of joy. It's not uncommon when I'm speaking to people who are on the verge of faith, maybe they're teetering on that edge where they, they understand the gospel, they... they They look at their life and they see, they they understand that Jesus has come to die for sins, but then they look at their life and instead of keeping their gaze fixed on Jesus, they really quickly revert back to looking at their life and their sin. And I'll hear this all the time, I'm not sure that I could be forgiven. Are you sure God could really forgive somebody like me? You don't know the kind of things I've done. You don't know how long I've walked away from God, the kind of sin I've been involved in and there's this kind of hopelessness and despair that can wash over people. And sometimes this kind of despair literally begins to eat away at us. Literally, we, we can't eat, we can't sleep. We see this oftentimes with people. But I wonder if in our overindulgent culture, we often go to the other end of the spectrum on this. We, we, we indulge ourselves as an attempt to assuage our guilty conscience, to do whatever it takes to to take away the sting of sin from our lives, the guilt and the shame that we experience. And I'm going to press a little bit on a a nerve maybe here because of the season that we're in, but I hope maybe this is helpful for some of you. I think we often run to self-indulgent behavior because we're trying to somehow make ourselves feel better about our sin, even if it's just for a a moment. Sometimes we run headlong into willful sin, uh, immediate pleasure, Sometimes it's more subtle than that, we eat too much, we drink too much, we watch too much, we shop too much, we scroll too much, we sleep too much, we play too much, we work too much, we try to quench our dry and thirsty souls with salt water. And rather than quenching, we end up killing. And in many ways, what our world calls addiction is simply, I think in many ways, an attempt to numb the sorrows of sin, sorrows of our own sin, sorrows of sin we've experienced because of the, the hurt and damage caused from outside of us, sorrows of sin we see in the world around us. We just want to numb ourselves to the pain around us and within us we have this strange ability to avoid dealing with our sin. And that—that that is the very thing that ends up stealing our joy and increasing our sorrows. The things we run towards, believing they're going to give us at least temporary joy, maybe even lasting joy, they end up hollowing us out so that we, we experience no joy at all. And we run from one thing to another to another, and when that's not enough, we just go to something else and an endless cycle of destruction. One of the greatest examples of this in the Scriptures is King David. And you you might know, you probably know the story of David and Bathsheba, but David, he rises to power. He's the king of all Israel. And we're told in the Scriptures that there's a time, a season in which kings are supposed to go out to war. Well, David decides that he's not going to go out to war. He's not going to do what he's supposed to do, and instead what he does is he stays at home. And he finds himself standing on the top of his home, looking around him, and he glances over and he, he sees a woman bathing. Now, just pause for a moment. There are things in this story, in this account of David and Bathsheba, Bathsheba that are eerily similar to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, I would argue that they are intentional echoes of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden because listen to what David does. He's got everything he needs. He's got all the provision of God, right? He's probably, arguably, the most blessed man on the face of the planet. And what does he do? He stands up on his roof. He looks and he sees something that is delightful to his eyes. Sound like Eve, right? And in a moment of weakness and temptation, he desires... And then the refrain in the passage, okay, the the dominant term used in the account of David and Bathsheba is this word right here. He takes, takes, takes. He takes what is not his. He takes what has not been rightly given to him. And after he's taken and he's satisfied the desires of his soul, he's sought some kind of joy, what happens? He feels the guilt and shame of his sin, so much so that he tries to do what? To cover his sin, to hide his sin, to bury his sin, even going to the point of killing the husband of Bathsheba. And he hides. The Scriptures give this indication that the, the burying of his sin lasts for around a year. It says, King David king of Israel, the man after God's own heart, hides his sin, lives in guilt and shame for a year. He wastes away, but there's this sweet moment in the Scriptures when Nathan the prophet, he comes into the courtroom of David, and he marches up to his throne, and he says to David, David, I've got a situation, a hypothetical situation. I need your help figuring something out, so let me tell you, there's, there's this, this man, he's a rich man, and he's got everything he could possibly desire, everything he could ever want, and, and he's got all the cattle and all of the, the goats and the sheep that any man could possibly have. And, 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 and then there's this neighbor that he has. He's a poor man. And this poor man, he's so poor. He's got a family, but he—he he, he, all he has is a possession. He's got this little lamb, and this lamb is so precious to this man. He—he he loves this lamb. He brings this lamb into his home. It's the first fur baby in the Bible. And—and and this lamb eats from their table, and he sleeps with the family. They just—it's like it's part of the family. And then—and then this visitors come from out of town to the rich man and and he's going to throw a feast for them but instead of taking from the bounty that he has the provisions that that he has what he does is he sneaks in and he steals this little precious lamb that's so precious to this poor man he takes it he slaughters it and he serves it up in a feast for his guests and his visitors and he looks at david and he says david tell me what should be done to this man And David, in anger and in fury, says, that man deserves to die. And in one of the most stunning moments in all of the Bible, Nathan the prophet, sent by God, looks at David in the eyes and says, David, you are the man. But something happens in this moment that is so important for us to pay attention to. Instead of of blame shifting, instead of fighting uh, against the truth any longer, instead of trying to point the finger at his circumstances, David simply breaks under the weight of conviction. And out of the brokenness in this moment, David pens one of the most precious psalms in all the Bible, a psalm that is precious to every Christian or every Jew who's ever found himself in sin, and perhaps quite frequently, Psalm 51. If you're not there, you can flip there. David, out of sorrow over his sin, genuine godly sorrow, he's led to this place of genuine repentance, not not worldly sorrow that only leads to regret, that's just sorry I got caught, real sorrow from the depths of his soul. He says in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. This is the cry of his heart. And even after committing adultery and murder, listen to what he says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And this is so powerful. I want you to see here the turn From genuine godly sorrow and repentance into joy. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Here's David crying out to God and saying, God, yes, I am broken. I am sorrowful over my sin, but I know, God, that what you have broken, you can turn into beauty. God, where I am ruined because of my sin, you can produce rejoicing over your forgiveness. That's why, by the way, Paul can say in Romans 2 verse 4 that it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Because we know, don't we? We know that when we live in our sin, it hollows us out, it deadens us to joy, it steals so much life from us, it produces only death. But where we find ourselves in sorrow over sin and genuine repentance, we find that our souls are refreshed in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? I mean, listen, this is so awesome. And what what a sweet reminder of why we are waiting in Advent and looking not only to the first coming of Christ, but the second. Because we know, listen, That with the coming of Christ, we have the fulfillment of this promise, which means not only in God's kindness are we led to repentance, but he takes all of our sins. And though we are like scarlet, listen, he makes us white as snow. There's not one sin that is confessed that will not be forgiven. And and let's be clear, sometimes repentance is really hard. It, It actually hurts in some sense, it's to repent. It's humiliating to have to repent, and yet we know that it brings times of refreshing. Listen, sin is stupid and leads to suffering. It always does, but maybe you can press this into your mind. Repentance is refreshing and always leads to rejoicing. Always. So let me just ask you today, are you holding on to sin and shame today? Are you living in sin and shame today? And if so, are you willing to release it unto the Lord in sorrow over your sin? Are you willing to fall down at the foot of the cross and embrace the forgiveness and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? Let the promise of Genesis 3.15 lead you from the sorrow of sin to the joy of repentance. And secondly, let it lead you from the sorrow of death to the joy of redemption. In order for repentance and forgiveness to be fully realized, redemption is required. We must be freed from the power of sin, but we also must be freed from the penalty of sin. Paul says in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. Where did he get that idea from? He got it from Genesis. He got it from Moses. We know that the moment they took of the fruit, that God would be faithful to his promise, that eating of it, they would surely die. We know that that death would eventually be physical, but it would be instantly spiritual. And at this point in the narrative, remember, they're asking the question, who is going to be the one, right? Where the promise is right here. There's somebody who's going to come and he's going to crush the head of the serpent, but his heel is going to be bruised. So they're asking this question, who is this one going to be? When is he coming? What's he going to look like? And and we know this side of the cross that it's going to be thousands of years, But the second question they're asking is just as important, and we actually get more clarity about it right here from this text. How is he going to do this? And the subtle clarity of this passage is this. Though he's going to crush the head of the serpent, his heel is going to be bruised. In other words, redemption is going to be costly, And the cost is going to require suffering. It will require a price. It will be painful. And in many ways, it will be similar to the defeat that he is going to accomplish in crushing the head of the serpent. This is the means by which humanity will be redeemed. And we know this as we read through the Scriptures, that redemption is a very common word in the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And it always, whenever it's used, it it evokes images of the marketplace, of the business world. Think of a transaction. So, it always carries with it this idea that something needs to be purchased, redeemed, but at a cost. And every time you kind of look at this word through the Old Testament. In every case of the word redemption, there is this decisive and costly intervention that's required. Somebody needs to pay a steep price to free property from a mortgage or pay a great price to free animals from slaughter or pay an immense amount of money to free people from slavery and even death. But its most potent use is relates to Israel's redemption or deliverance from Egypt and from Babylon. In fact, in in Exodus and Deuteronomy, just a couple of verses, I'll just share them with you. Just listen to how redemption is used here. It says in Exodus 6, verse 6, "'Say therefore to the people of Israel, "'I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians.'" and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. See how redemption requires great strength from God, but I want you to not miss this. It also requires the judgment of God. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 15, it says this, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, listen to how we ought to respond, therefore I command you this day. In other words, when we understand redemption, we understand that there is a required response. So, what exactly is the ransom price that's to be paid, what is the bruised heel, what is the suffering required, we know this, this side of the cross, the Old Testament will begin to elaborate and clarify what exactly this bruised heel will be, and what we find out is that the sorrow of death is only erased by a substitute that will take the sorrow upon himself, we know this passage points us right to Jesus who is the man of sorrows. You know, we often read Isaiah 53 around Good Friday and Easter, but I think as we we look towards the incarnation, and the incarnation reminds us of the cross, I think it's helpful that through the lens of Genesis 3.15, we maybe hear this in a fresh way this afternoon. Listen to what Isaiah 53 verses 3 through 5 say. It says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. This points us all the way to the the cross where we know what Jesus must do. We know how his heel is going to be bruised. We know that the same weapon that he wields to crush the head of the serpent is the very weapon that's going to be used against him to bruise his heel. And even as he destroys Satan, he will suffer death himself. And he will hang on the cross as a man of sorrows... Because he must take upon himself the sorrow of the sins of the world, of all those who would believe upon Jesus Christ. He must suffer and die the just judgment of God. He must absorb the full weight of God's wrath. And three days later, he must rise victoriously from the grave, showing that he and he alone has power over sin, Satan, and death. He must prove that he and he alone can put death to death, but it requires that he die. And this is why Paul can say in Ephesians 1, verse 7: In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through his blood. And all of that is according to the riches of his grace, it it is all a gift of his grace. And so I have three questions to maybe help you apply this to your life. First is this, do you have this today? Do you have the joy of redemption? Have you turned and looked at Jesus Christ? Have you put your your faith and trust in him? Have you repented of your sin, believed upon him? Do you see Jesus as the only one who could pay the price that you deserved and give you a righteousness that you could never earn and never deserve? Is that you? And if not, will you turn to Jesus today, and will you find the only joy that your soul has been longing for, the greatest joy that your soul has been longing for? The second question I have is for you who say yes to that question. Yes, I have it. Here's the question. How do I know that I have it today? How do I know that I am one of the redeemed children of God, that I have been purchased by Him Let me give you a word that in many ways is synonymous with redemption, and that's this word, lordship, lordship. And by that I mean that Jesus has all, has exclusive rights over your life. He has full authority that you have brought yourself under His kingship. You see, it's easy to say you believe in the gospel. It's another thing to see that your life proves that you have the gospel and that the gospel has you. And what we find out in Scripture is that redemption always leads, as it did in Deuteronomy, to this idea of obedience, of a a joyful, loving obedience as a response to the grace of God and the power of His saving work in your life. You see, the idea, the very word redemption, it draws attention to the Redeemer who has ownership rights over what He has purchased. If you go and purchase something, you buy something from the store, you buy a new car, you pay for it in cash, guess what? You have exclusive rights over that car. That's your car. When God purchases you, He gets exclusive rights over you. This is why Acts 20 verse 28 says that the church of Jesus Christ has been purchased with his blood. It's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that you are not your own. Listen, if you're in Christ today, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor or glorify God with your body. Everything you are is all of his. This is the evidence. Now, obviously, this doesn't happen perfectly in any of our lives, but what we begin to see as we follow Christ and we understand the gospel in our lives is that it becomes the joy of our lives to fold every area underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. We want him to have every part of us and when we find out there's parts of us that aren't fully submitted to him and his authority, we gladly lay those down in humility and repentance and we say, God, I want you to rule over this area of my life. Let me add on to this that I, I think so much joy in the Christian life is hindered because of a lack of lordship. I think some of us in this room, we, we, we struggle to find joy in our relationship with the Lord, listen, because we refuse to let him be Lord. And any time we, we start kind of you know, carving off parts of our life and you know, segmenting it and saying, God, you can have this part of me and this part of me, but I'm going to hold on to these parts, what we're actually saying is this, God, I don't want full joy. But you see, once we were slaves to sin and now we're slaves of Christ and serving Him is true freedom, it's true joy. Psalm 20 verse 5 says this, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. Joy, you see, is the right response to the redeeming work of Jesus and our continued submission to His Lordship. The promise leads us from the sorrow of death to the joy of redemption. And third, from the sorrow of separation to the joy of restoration. Psalm 1611, it's such a precious psalm it says, you make known to me the paths of life. And listen to this, this is awesome. And in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I love that so much because it's it's like, you know, sometimes we settle for partial joy. We settle for temporary joy. We settle for pseudo joy. And meanwhile, the scriptures are, they're, they're not silent on this. It's like it's right in your face. Don't, do you want full joy? I mean, do, do you want the joy that your soul has been aching for, that, that the world is longing for? Because if you do, it's right there at your fingertips. And if you're in Christ today, listen, all you need to do is keep wrapping your arms around it. It's been given to you. Our redemption means our restoration. And one of the greatest sorrows in life, isn't this true, the greatest sorrow I think in life is loneliness. I think think loneliness is is one of the the greatest things that a human being can suffer. And I think even Jesus, he gives us a glimpse of this as he hangs on the cross in his humanity, and he he cries out, what does he say? My God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? I think part of the torment of hell is going to be the sense of utter aloneness. When you crave relationship, not just with others, but with God, you, you know, you're fully cognizant of the fact that you were created to know Him. You're fully aware that you were meant for Him, to have Him, to enjoy Him, to love Him, to treasure Him, And the torment of hell is knowing that you will never, ever have him. I just, you know, for many people around the Christmas season, for some of us in here, the holidays are sweet. You know, we we have great memories. We look back with fondness. We have great families and friends. We got lots of events on the calendar. But I'm also very aware that if that's you, listen, there's at least one other person in here there's at least half of this room maybe who look back at Christmas and the holidays and they have this deep sense of sorrow and sadness and they, they look back and, and they're grieving loss maybe loss of a loved one, they feel so alone, they feel maybe the brokenness of family relationships where things aren't the way they're supposed to be there's, there's separation, there's hurt there's, there's sadness And there's some people in here who they just they have nobody. They have no community. They don't really have friends. They're they're looking at Christmas, going, I'm gonna celebrate this all by myself. It reminds us, listen, that we were made for relationship. And in Genesis 3:15. The sorrow of this moment and the sadness of this moment, we've we've talked about this, it's not that they've lost all of the material blessings of Eden, they've lost the heart of Eden. They've lost the presence of God. The sorrow of knowing they're never going to walk with God in the cool of the afternoon, they're never going to enjoy the kind of intimacy they once experienced that it really did produce delight and joy in their soul. Now they're looking at their sin and they're realizing that they gave up everything for nothing. And this ache, this ache for intimacy, it exists in all of us. The sorrow of separation from the divine presence of God, it exists in every single human soul. But the promise of Genesis 3.15, listen, it points us toward a restoration of this broken relationship. In this moment, God is declaring, listen, what has been severed and broken by sin, I will come and make right. I will take the separation and I will bring about restoration. This is a declaration in seed form that those who are now far off from God because of sin can be brought near. What's so interesting is that humanity is going to be barred from Eden, right? We know that. Never again allowed to go back into the the place of God's concentrated presence, His intimate dwelling. But the promise here reminds them of God's intention to dwell with them again. And we're given these signposts all throughout the Old Testament. That this picture that God is going to come and dwell again with his people. We get these little glimpses and, and tastes. We see it in the tabernacle. This microcosm of the cosmic temple of God at creation. Where the presence of God comes and fills the temple. And God goes with his people where they go. He is with them in their midst. But it's isolated It's temporal, it's momentary, it's fleeting. And then they go into the promised land, and they build the, the temple, a permanent structure, and the glory of God dwells with His people again in the holy of holies. It's filled with the glory of God, but that still is just a taste. It's just a, a sampling, and they, they lose that even as they go off into exile. And that's why when we get into the New Testament, when we're reminded about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, God in flesh, is said to come and dwell among us. He tabernacles with His people here, heaven. And earth touch once again. And then Jesus Christ, he's, he'll say, right? He'll say, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And that's exactly what he does. He goes to the cross where he pays for your sins and mine and he, he's buried. And three days later, he's raised from the grave to newness of life where he defeats sin and death and Satan. But then, even better, he ascends on high where he's exalted as the rightful king of the universe. And what does he do? He sends his spirit that comes from heaven and fills God's people... So that Paul would say, you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit, are a temple of the living God. And Peter would say to the church of Jesus Christ, you are a holy temple made up of living stones. God longing to dwell with his people again, but it's, it's not quite the fullness of what it one day will be. It's still pointing us forward to a second coming of Jesus. When God will fully restore and we will know in fullness the presence of God. this is the staggering reality of the incarnation. Just think about what we celebrate at Christmas. This separation, this, this chasm was so wide. It was so expansive. It was humanly impossible to bridge this chasm. And so God in love says, I will come from heaven to earth for you. You can never, never repair what is broken. So I'll come. And through my life, my death, my resurrection, my ascension, I will bring you back to God. God does it all. That's what I hope you remember at Christmas. When you look at God coming from heaven to earth for you, here's the one thing that should just be pressed into your heart. God came and did it all. You say, well, well, what does humanity contribute to our restoration to God? Only the sin, sorrow, and separation that made it necessary. That's it. And God sees all of that in love and in grace. He sets his heart upon us. So let me ask you a question. In light of all of this, are you slowing down this Christmas season? to see and to savor your Savior. I mean, amidst all the, the hustle and bustle of Christmas, there's lots of things to do, lots of places to go, people to see. We've got a lot of things to take care of. You know, you're forgetting Christmas presents. You're running out to buy them on all hours of the night. Like, I, I wait till Christmas Eve to buy all my Christmas presents. Think about how I feel. <laughs> Just kidding. Thank goodness for Amazon. Amazon. But I wonder, are you intentionally building into the rhythms of this season, moments to simply slow down? Spend more time talking with your family about Advent and about Christmas and about the incarnation and about the cross. Not less time. Build it in intentionally to the times of fellowship with friends and community rejoice in the restoration that god has brought dwell and delight more in the presence of god spend more time in god's word in this season not less time spend more time in prayer and just soaking in the presence of god not less time in this season don't let the busyness of the season keep you away from the very reason for the season the presence of god How about this? Are you leading others from the sorrow of their separation to the joy of restoration? I mean, I I just... There are people, there, this ache, this longing, this hurt, this sorrow, the sense of, of lacking of relation. This is real right now for so many people. They're so primed. They're so primed by the, the grace of God, by life circumstance, by God's providence to, to, to have somebody come up to them and say, do you want to know true joy? Do you want to know how you can find everything that you have been looking for? Do you want to know how you can be reunited back with your creator, the one that you've sinned against and rebelled against and you've been separated from? Don't you want to know how you can get back to him and know the source of all joy for all eternity? It's right here. May God help us this season. May God press into our hearts. May God give us conviction to not shy away and listen, to not simply hammer away at sin, but listen, to hammer away at joy. There's joy, there's joy, there's joy to be found in the Lord. Finally, let the promise lead you from the sorrow of destruction to the joy of recreation. We know what the scriptures teach, that that all of creation groans. There's this creaking and cracking as creation ages, awaiting to be restored, to be redeemed, to be recreated. And the gospel actually helps us understand what God is doing. The, The death and resurrection of Jesus, it reminds us of not only what God is doing to us, for we are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. But what God is going to do to all of creation, the creation is going to die in a sense, and God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, is going to recreate it. He's going to bring about a new creation where there is no more sin, there is no more Satan, and there certainly is no more sorrow. Every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. All of creation was deeply damaged in the fall by sin. It must be recreated. And the first coming of Christ reminds us that God has not forgotten His promise. Psalm 84 verse 1 and 2 it gives us this, again, picture of the temple. Put it on the screen for you guys. It's Speaking of the the permanent temple in Israel at the time and one says, but I want you to see this pointing forward to the new heavens and the new earth, which is described as a temple. The Psalmist says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Listen, this is a powerful reminder that listen, one day if you're in Christ, you will enter into the courts of the Lord. That that one day, though right now your your soul longs and your your faints for the courts of the Lord, that your heart and your flesh, they're one day going to be in the presence of God and you're going to sing for joy in the courts of the Lord. You are going to encounter the living God and experience life like you've never experienced it before. this time of the year, we're reminded of that, and we, we actually sing about it in some of our, our Christmas songs. In fact, one of my favorite songs is Joy to the World. Um, Joy to the World is written by Isaac Watts, and he, he actually drew inspiration from two psalms. I'll, I'll throw them on the screen for you as well. Psalm 98, verse 4. Listen to, to this inspiration for this psalm. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Psalm 96, verse 11 and 12, again, inspiration for this song. He says this, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. You see what he was doing? He was pointing towards the day when all of creation will rejoice in the redemptive power and plan of God. And we, we sing this, he, he, he also drew inspiration from Genesis 3:17 and 18, which addresses the curse because of Adam's sin. And the third standout, which providentially, I suppose, we didn't sing when we sang this song today, listen to what it says. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. One day soon, Jesus is coming again to deal with the destruction of sin, far as the curse is found in all of creation. He's beginning now with weary souls, you and me. He's making us new creations in Christ. Some of you today may become a new creation in Christ. Then we wait, we long for the day when he will return. Sometimes the waiting is hard, sometimes life is filled with, with, yes, much pain and tragedy and difficulty, but we know what's in front of us and so we can endure and wait, even singing for joy. Is it any wonder that at the announcement of Jesus' birth, Matthew writes these words in chapter two, verse 10, when they saw the star, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Luke, in Luke chapter 1 verse 14 says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. The promise of Genesis 3.15 is pointing to a person who will lead us from the sorrow of sin, death, separation, and destruction to the joy of repentance, redemption, restoration, and recreation. If I could sum it up, I'd simply say it like this. We're being led out of the sorrow of Adam into the eternal, everlasting joy of Jesus. May we rejoice in Him now as the one who is exalted over all, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. May it be our joy to sing His praise for all eternity. Let's pray.